Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is co-host and Supreme Court reporter, Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. It's great to have you back on the show after uh, having Amber on last week. Um, It's been a busy week at the Supreme Court, and I'm excited to kind of break everything down with you, Natalie. There's been a lot going on. I know. I was so excited to hear, though, you and Amber last week. It was such a good show. Um, And happy to dig in today, though. We have opinions, which I'm so excited about. Yeah, that brings the grand total to six. I'm going to do a kind of a, an opinion count tracker throughout the term just to kind of see if we're actually going to make it to the end on time. But uh, for those keeping score at home, that means three unanimous opinions so far. One of them was 6-3. Two of them were 5-4. Now, interesting little tidbit here, Natalie. Uh, only Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts and uh, Freshman Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson are the two justices that have been in the majority in each of the six opinions that we've seen. So kind of off to a little bit of a a, a, a rocky start when it comes to unanimity. Um, you usually see a pretty long streak of unanimous decisions at the beginning of each term. Not so. That's true. Although it's so early. Let's see. Let's see what happens with uh, as they roll along. But there was a big first opinion from Justice Jackson this week, correct? Yeah, that's right. Not only has she been in the majority in in every single case this term, she has authored her first opinion for the court. Now, she's authored opinions as a Supreme Court justice, but none, you know, speaking on behalf of the court in a merits uh, decision. Now, this was a case called Delaware versus Pennsylvania decided on Tuesday. Uh, Long story short, it's a dispute between a bunch of states over who can claim uncashed MoneyGram checks. Um, you know, a number of states were saying that Delaware was wrongly collecting uh, these abandoned MoneyGram financial products to the tune of like two hundred and fifty million dollars. It's a little bit That's complicated. That's a lot of uncashed checks. <laughs> well, it is because it basically covers anywhere in the country that these two particular financial products um, were were essentially uh, purchased because. Uh, I'll get into it in a little bit. Basically, uh, MoneyGram was following the common law of something called escheatment. And escheatment is the area of law that governs uh, abandoned property. And under the common law, uh, this abandoned property in certain circumstances returns to the state where uh, the, the entity holding the property is incorporated. MoneyGram is incorporated in Delaware. Um, now, uh, you know, a, a number of states were <laughs> obviously pretty ticked off about this and they wanted to do something about it. Were they feeling cheated by escheatment? <laughs> they were feeling cheated by escheatment. And so they took advantage of the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction docket, which is the docket that basically says states can file direct lawsuits in the Supreme Court against other states. This is a privilege that only states get. Nobody else can file lawsuits uh, directly in the Supreme Court, um, as a, uh, although there is some other uh, circumstances that cover original jurisdiction that we won't get to. But in any event, um, the states that wanted a piece of the pie were basically saying this law called the Federal Disposition Act should govern these abandoned MoneyGram products. Um, and if that were so, then 
that money would essentially go to the state where the product was purchased. So if it was a customer in Pennsylvania or something that purchased the MoneyGram, then they would then Pennsylvania would be the one to get the abandoned property. In any event, uh, Justice Jackson rules for the challenger states who felt is cheated out of all this money to use a bad pun, and uh, said that the statute governs this abandoned property. Now, uh, it was a unanimous decision uh, for the most part. What do you mean by for the most part? It's it's either unanimous or it's not. What's going on there? Well, yeah, I mean, so for the first 20 pages of her opinion, it was unanimous. But when it came to the end of her opinion, suddenly a number of justices decided they weren't going to join a specific part of her opinion. Now, I thought it was interesting just because, you know, when it comes to a new justice's first opinion, there's a long tradition in the Supreme Court of having that decision be unanimous. And and this isn't a non-unanimous decision. It's a a 9-0 ruling for sure. But I was kind of interested by the fact that four justices decided, you know what, I kind of don't feel like signing my name upon a certain part of the opinion. So I I went ahead and looked at part 4B. This is the part of the opinion where uh, Justices Thomas, Alito, Barrett, and Gorsuch decided not to join. And in it, she uses legislative history to support her reading of the Federal Disposition Act for why these states other than Delaware should basically be getting a piece of the pie of these unclaimed MoneyGram products. And specifically, she cites, you know, a, a, she cites a Senate report. She cites a statement by a committee chairman. She even cites a letter that was sent to Congress by uh, a top lawyer in the Treasury Department um, during the time that this legislation was being drafted. And she called these, you know, reliable sources was the phrase that she used that supported her reading of the law. So. Can you explain why the conservative justices didn't sign on to this? I have a feeling it goes back to that textualism uh, episode we had not too long ago. I mean, you're exactly right. So I I guess I'd say, like, for a lot of casual court watchers or even non-court watchers, the idea that citing legislative history is controversial might come as a bit of a surprise. But in fact, at the Supreme Court, um, you know, the justices have been basically battling for decades over the proper role of these sources in the context of statutory interpretation, the the process of actually interpreting law. And there's a a school of thought um, championed by, as you say, the textualist wing of the court, going back to, you know, the late Justice Antonin Scalia that thinks that, you know, these sources, these legislative history sources are unreliable. They do not carry with them any real authority that judges should have to pay attention to. And in fact, in some instances, they can actually mislead or distract uh, judges or justices from the true authority um, behind law, which is, in their view, obviously, the text. Um, So yeah, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that there was this slight fissure in the uh, Justice Jackson's kind of first opinion here. I think it it possibly shows that you know this is definitely not a uh, debate that's going to die anytime soon, and especially because you know clearly not all the Republican appointees on the court feel as strongly about the idea of legislative history as you know Thomas Barrett, Alito, and Gorsuch. You had. Uh, 
Kavanaugh and Roberts actually join that part of her decision. So clearly they have fewer misgivings about using such sources. Now, if this is a touchy subject, why do you think Justice Jackson included it in her opinion? I mean, she could have gotten a fully unanimous opinion without it, I think. Oh, definitely. I mean, it would have been 9-0 all the way down, right? But um, I think what's happening here, I don't think it's a stretch to say that justices have been using these like initial opinions to kind of, you know, plant a flag of sorts for their kind of approach to judicial methodologies. And I've seen that with a number of recent justices, particularly Justice Gorsuch. I mean, his first opinion was like hues very closely to the kind of textualist arguments that he raises day in and day out on the Supreme Court and rejecting obviously public policy concerns. And perhaps what you're seeing with Justice Jackson is her saying, yes, I think these sources can be of value um, in interpreting the law and I'm going to continue to use them despite the fact that they may be potentially out of favor with some of my colleagues on the court. And I mean, you're hearing that every day, or not every day, but you're hearing that fairly frequently from her in oral arguments, her bringing up things like, you know, the context through which legislation is passed or Senate reports and the like. I mean, just not too long ago, we were, uh, I think, yeah, it was last episode um, with Amber where I was chatting about Justice Jackson's questions about the context in which Section 230 was passed and the problems that the lawmakers were trying to address. So she's... I think it's fair to say she's 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 making a point here that you know even at the expense of unanimity she's going to say that these are very valuable sources. Well, I personally am here for this debate and this high court drama, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to see how it plays. That out. might be stretching drama, the meaning of drama, to its breaking point. But I take your point that for for Scotus nerds like us, it's always interesting. Also interesting this week is a cert grant in. What I think is fair to say will be another blockbuster case. Um, On Monday, the justices agreed to take up a case that questions whether the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is unconstitutionally funded. Natalie, CFPB, constitutionality, Supreme Court, I feel like I'm having deja vu. Well, same here, me too. (laughs) And that's because this is the second go around for the CFPB before the high court. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners will remember back in 2020, the court ruled that the president has a right to oust the director of the CFPB um, for more than the very narrow path that was originally laid out in the legislation that created the agency. Um, Again, that was looking at the constitutionality of the way in which the agency was structured. So what is the issue in this case that was just taken up by the court on Monday? So in this latest case, known as Consumer Financial Protection Bureau versus Community Financial Services Association of America, it's targeting how the CFPB draws its budget directly from the Federal Reserve rather than through the usual annual appropriations process. So like, you know, look, every year we get this budget fight over and lawmakers are fighting over how much money to give to various agencies. And there's a lot of politicking that happens there. And it was meant to protect the watchdog, the CFPB, um, from that politics and make it more independent to not have to go through that process. But the Fifth Circuit, um, in looking at a recent payday lending rule um, that was being uh, 
that they they basically blocked the payday lending rule, but they did so on the grounds that the funding structure of the CFPB insulates the agency from congressional oversight, which is they deemed unconstitutional, um, and therefore the payday lending rule is unconstitutional. And in a bold move, I think they're saying everything the agency's done in its existence is unconstitutional. Right. They're saying, okay, you're unconstitutional, so everything you've done is basically bunk up until this point. Now, some kind of an inter- uh, an important dynamic here is obviously unlike the SELA law case in 2020, where it was the challenger to the CFPB that was appealing that, sup- that the Supreme Court decided to grant cert on, in this case, it's the government, right? That's right. The Biden administration um, is essentially reversing its role here uh, because um, before they wanted the director to be able to oust it, to, to put in theirs, uh, their pick. Um, and this time they are appealing this because they would like the agency to continue working as as it's been working. Um, so they have asked the court to take a look at this ruling, uh, which has caused uh, quite a stir. So what kind of stir are we talking about here? I mean, what are the what's the upshot of this case? So look, long term, there's the whole question as to whether if this decision is upheld, does it essentially cast doubt on the validity of everything that the CFPB has done um, in its 10 years of existence? Short term, um, as our senior reporter for banking, John Hill, uh, noted, there have been already stays in like half a dozen CFPB enforcement actions since the Fifth Circuit ruling. There are very likely to be a lot more. I think I saw at least one um, being one case asking for another stay similar after the Supreme Court took up this case, um, just because of the uncertainty as to whether the CFPB has a right to be doing these enforcement actions. So it's causing a a lot of ruckus. Um, Side note, the Biden administration had asked for an expedited timeline on this case, um, in part because of the kind of chaos this uncertainty causes. But so far, the justices have not agreed to that. So it does look like this case is going to be lined up for next term, not this term. Also, another side note that I found interesting, uh, we'll be seeing a recurring player in this high court CFPB drama, uh, Noel Francisco, who back in 2020 was the Solicitor General that argued the SELA law case, um, is the counsel of record. He's now with Jones Day, and he's actually uh, representing the trade groups who launched this suit. That is really interesting and perhaps a story for another day. Um, I've noticed definitely a trend of former SGs once they return to private practice, um, specializing in areas of the law that they litigated as solicitor generals. Um, But in any event, certainly one to watch next term, um, as I doubt the justices will uh, you know, feel compelled to like tack it onto the April calendar, um, given that it's so Uh, close now. Um, So why don't we talk about one of the big cases being argued this term uh, that was heard on Tuesday, I should say two cases involving uh, President Joe Biden's uh, kind of flagship student debt relief plan that uh, could uh, potentially wipe out uh, around $430 billion in federal student loan debt held by up to 43 Americans. This policy is currently blocked by two lower court orders. 
and in back-to-back hearings on Tuesday, uh, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the Biden administration's appeal over those orders um, in relation to two lawsuits being brought by uh, two different sets of challengers. So this one has obviously been getting a lot of mainstream attention just because of the broad impact that it can have. I know there were like lots of live streaming of this these arguments, which, you know, doesn't usually happen for Supreme Court cases. But Jimmy, can you kind of break down some of the background to what got these cases to the Supreme Court? Yeah, I'll just take them in order. So the first case was filed by a group of six uh, Republican states led by the Nebraska Attorney General's office. Um, and the second case was brought by two individuals who say that they were either not entitled to, you know, any relief under the plan or the full relief under the plan. So basically how it works is uh, depending on, you know, su- or subject to certain income limitations, uh, the, the Biden administration's debt relief plan would forgive up to, uh, you know, forgive either $10,000 um, or $20,000 um, in federal student loans, the difference being whether or not um, the applicant took out uh, or was a recipient of Pell Grants. Um, so that's kind of the the basic background of the two challengers here. Now, at issue before the Supreme Court are really two separate questions and, and two separate questions in both cases. So, you know, the first issue obviously is the big one that, um, you know, the, 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 the challengers here, the states and the individual plaintiffs say that this plan is illegal. That it uh, that the Secretary of Education, in announcing it back in August, had overstepped his authority under this 9/11 era law known as the Heroes Act. So to kind of rewind a little bit, um, the, the Secretary of Education, in announcing it, had found or had based the authority of his plan uh, on this 2003 law known as the Heroes Act which gives him the authority to waive or modify uh, student uh, loan requirements in times of national emergency. And now the Biden administration has argued that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, qualifies as such a national emergency that entitles the Secretary of Education to essentially cancel uh, these $430 billion of outstanding federal student loans. A key issue in regards to the merits here is something called the major questions doctrine. Uh, We've talked about it on the podcast in terms gone by, um, but essentially it is a doctrine embraced by the court's conservative justices that says, look, if you're a federal agency and you want to do anything, uh, any of these broad sweeping uh, policies, uh, you have to find clear express authorization from Congress in the statute that you're citing. And to the extent that there isn't that clear authority, you are overstepping your authority and, you know, kind of undermining the separation of powers here. Uh, There's also a second really important issue. So beyond the merits here, um, there's a technical question. So before the Supreme Court can even decide that this plan is illegal, um, it needs to it needs to find that the challengers here, these six states and these two individuals, have standing, meaning they have suffered a particular injury that is caused by the the policy here, 
and that is redressable in court. That's kind of the legal requirement of standing. So you got the merits, and then you got the threshold standing question, and that's what the Supreme Court was debating on Tuesday. So I always find standing questions that reach the Supreme Court so fascinating because I'm like, how do you get to the Supreme Court without knowing if you have standing? Like that's usually, <laughs> it feels like this should be such an obvious question to be able to answer. But I think this is a good case that can help illustrate some of the issues that that might pop up in weird situations. Can you kind of talk through why there's this question of standing here? So the Biden administration is arguing, and it has argued throughout the life of these two cases, that the plaintiffs don't have standing. In fact, this is something that they've been arguing as a defense against a variety of different challenges to the student debt relief plan. Not just these two, but um, these are the ones that we're talking about. Uh, So below, the courts disagreed with the Biden administration, and they found that um, in the case of the states, the Eighth Circuit said that the states likely had standing to pursue their claims because um, of Missouri's loan uh, servicing entity. Um, Kind of some background here, and we're getting a little bit more in the weeds, but it's very important to the case. Uh, Missouri has a state-created loan servicing entity called the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority. And this is, like I said, a state entity that effectively administers federal student loans for Missouri borrowers, um, helps them pay them back on time, also provides, uh, you know, scholarship funding and the like. And, you know, there are fees collected by Mohila in connection with its administering of these loans. Now, the states, which include Missouri, argue that by wiping out these $430 billion uh, of federal student loans, Mohila is going to lose around 40% of its revenue because of all the loans that it will no longer be administering. And that, um, the states say, is satisfies the standing requirement in that you know the, this state entity has suffered a real concrete injury here that's caused by the Biden administration. Um, Now, the Biden administration says that, no, you can't sue on behalf of Mohila because Mohila is a separate legal person, and you cannot vindicate the rights of a separate legal entity in federal court and claim that as grounds to, you know, assert Article III standing. Um, So that's kind of the dispute in the state case, really, like, to what extent is this state-created loan servicer actually independent from the state, and to what extent can the state actually sue on behalf of Mohila? Um, in the second case, one of the individual plaintiffs is not getting any relief under the program because she took out commercial loans. The other plaintiff was able to get $10,000, but wasn't able to get the full $20,000 in forgiveness because he didn't receive a Pell Grant. Now, they say that they're injured by the fact that they weren't able to actually comment during the rulemaking process under the Administrative Procedure Act, um, at which point they could have theoretically been able to advocate for different eligibility requirements that would have given them each the full amount. So that's the basic standing argument that they make. Now, the Biden administration counters that you know plaintiffs' injuries need to be redressable by a federal court. And to the extent that these plaintiffs are asking the court system to rip up and 
block this debt relief program, well, that's not going to do anything for the for either of them. It's going to leave the one who took out commercial loans in the same place because she'll get zero dollars in debt relief. But the other one will lose the $10,000 that they're actually currently entitled to under the plan. So they say, you know, you can't go to court and ask for yourself and everyone else to be worse off than you were before. That's not how Article 3 standing actually works. Okay, so this is some thorny ground here that <laughs> the Supreme Court has to go tread. Turning to Tuesday, what was what were the justices making of these arguments? I think the top line here, after more than three hours of arguments, is that the court's conservative justices are very skeptical of the legality of Biden's student debt plan. They were extremely sympathetic to the challenger's arguments that the Secretary of Education overstepped his authority under the HEROES Act um, in providing this massive relief across the country. You heard Chief Justice Roberts in particular be very dubious of the Secretary of Education's authority to do this. He's basically saying, look, this is a program that affects half a trillion dollars in, in, in federal student loans for up to 43 million Americans. He's saying that that should be clearly authorized by Congress. And he's referring over and over again to this major questions doctrine that I was referring to earlier um, that the court not long ago used to strike down the EPA's greenhouse gas emissions regulations. Um, he says, quote, now we take very seriously the idea of the separation of powers and that power should be divided to prevent its abuse. And there are many procedural niceties that have to be followed for the same purpose. Referring to, obviously, Congress going through the process of legislation. And this is a concern that's shared by a number of other conservative justices on the court. Um, between you know Justice Samuel Alito similarly suggesting that the Secretary of Education um, lacked this authority to to do this, as well as uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh saying that you know the he, he refers to the quote the quote finest moments in the Supreme Court's history is actually pushing back against overly broad claims of agency authority. Now, not only was the the court kind of skeptical of the legality of the program and what i thought was a pretty telling you know uh series of questions the court was actually questioning the fairness of the policy itself the idea that like you know college grads who decided to take these loans out should be forgiven this debt who are statistically i guess more likely to make more money than non-college grads they get this relief Whereas Chief Justice Roberts brings up the idea of someone who decides not to go to college and instead takes out a private loan to start a lawn care business suddenly, you know, is paying taxes, paying their taxes, and they are not entitled to that relief. There, there's kind of a fundamental political disagreement um, by the Supreme Court justices about not just the legality, but the wisdom of the policy, which I thought was pretty striking considering that, you know, like this is a court that oftentimes has pushed back against these kinds of policy arguments. And in fact, that's exactly what um, the U.S. Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, who was defending the policy's legality, was saying that this is a decision that Congress made. And she was getting a lot of assistance in the case from the three liberal justices who were sympathetic to her arguments. 
And Justice Kagan in particular was suggesting that, look, you know, this is this is a statute that authorizes the Secretary of Education to modify or waive or modify um, the, the the student loan uh, requirements. And she says, you know, we're a court that deals with difficult, you know, legislation every day. This is not one of those, suggesting that the court is clearly authorizing what the Secretary of Education did in this situation. Um, so that was like your general expected ideological split throughout the you know the first two hearings of the case when it came to the actual merits of President Biden's uh, loan forgiveness plan. You had a very skeptical conservative wing of the court and a very sympathetic liberal wing of the court. So it sounds like the Biden administration has a very tough hill to climb here when it comes to the merits. But what about that standing question we were talking about, about whether the plaintiffs can actually sue? Any insights as to how the conservatives were looking at that question? There's still a lot of uncertainty after oral arguments about the question of standing. I mean, there were more than three hours of uh, hearings on Tuesday, but you know, you really didn't get too many questions from the conservatives on the actual specifics of standing or at least any that really betrayed their leanings in the case. Now, you could obviously interpret that as, oh, like, you know, they, they're, they're clearly not that interested in it, which suggests they're ready to reach the merits and rule against the Biden administration. Or you could just say, like, look, we just don't have the really the data to say whether there's a majority. But there, there were some questions. So the whole idea of the relationship between Missouri and Mohila was a central kind of issue in the the state case that came up multiple times. Um, you saw Justice Amy Coney Barrett in particular kind of homing in on this. Now, kind of the elephant in the in the room, so to speak, is the fact that Missouri is suing on behalf of Mohila, but Mohila is not, you know, in the courtroom. They're not party to the case. In fact, they specifically kind of distanced themselves from this litigation to the point where Missouri's attorney general's office actually had to like FOIA or do the state equivalent of a FOIA to get certain documents from Mohila. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why that is. Uh, I, I take it by your look, Natalie, that you're kind of curious as to why <laughs> why that is. I mean, that's just such a strange little situation there. Like, it, you know, it, it, it puts my reporter journalists like, you know, sniffing skills on alert like what why not (laughs) why aren't they there they have been mum about this lawsuit um you saw some speculation from pre-logger about why they perhaps have decided not to be a party to it has maybe has something to do with the fact that you know the Biden administration's debt plan also includes a resumption of federal student loan payments remember how they kind of structured us we're going to wipe out all this debt but the long-standing uh, pause on loan repayments is going to continue. So when those loan repayments continue, Mohila is going to continue to make money. So maybe there's some kind of incentives there um, to, you know, just kind of take a back seat and let this whole process play out. Kind of take a hit and let it right, go. Right. But 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 it it kind of wore on Justice Barrett a bit. Like she was asking. Uh, the the Solicitor General for Nebraska, uh, who was litigating the case on behalf of the states, which included Missouri, you know, why isn't Mohila 
in the courtroom. She's, she asks, like, why couldn't Missouri simply, quote, strong arm Mohila and say you've got to pursue this suit? Um, which suggests that she's a little skeptical that maybe they're, you know, the same legal entity um, for purposes of standing. And yet, Natalie, um, she kind of asked some pretty skeptical questions of of the of the federal government as well on the standing question. Um, she was kind of she had a, she was having an exchange with Prelogger about you know, whether Mohila could be considered um, the state of Missouri for purposes of First Amendment law, right? And uh, Prelogger answers yes for purposes of like the state action doctrine, yes. Um, and so that kind of flummoxes Barrett a little bit. And she's like, well, how can you be considered part of the state for purposes of the state action doctrine, but not for purposes of standing law? She says either they are or they are not part of the government of Missouri, right? And so there's just kind of this like thorny mess of what to do about the question of standing. I didn't really get a clear sense from the justices of whether they agree with either side. I mean, there just wasn't, like I said, a, a, a really enough data. I mean, I think Chief Justice Roberts, even in the second case involving the individual plaintiffs, was suggesting that, you know, he said, quote, I think your challenge is to make that sufficiently particularized and non-speculative, referring to this injury that they're claiming here. So there's some skepticism of, of the standing uh, arguments advanced by the challengers. Are they? Are, is is it enough to rise to the level of a conservative Supreme Court overcoming their obvious criticisms of the legality of the Biden administration's debt plan? Is it is it such that they're they're so skeptical of these standing arguments that they're willing to 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 uphold for now a program that they believe is perhaps not just Ill- illegal but also deeply unfair. I mean, I kind of have a hard time believing that. I don't even want to weigh in with how I think this one's going to shake out because I am flummoxed. <laughs> like, the word <laughs> you've used, I think, several times here today. I am flummoxed as to how this might shake out. Um, definitely interested, though. Yeah, it was a little bit it was a little bit confusing and hard to know what to make of it. I just kind of feel like we don't have that much more information than we already had before the arguments. That's kind of my feeling. Like we probably could have guessed that the court's conservatives were going to be pretty skeptical of this, but we really just don't know that much about whether they think that these plaintiffs can actually sue to challenge the program. Now, I saw a lot of the coverage was a little bit more bullish on the, the debt program being struck down by the court's conservatives, but I'm a little bit less so. Jimmy, thank you for walking us through this very, very complicated and thorny um, set of arguments. I think that does it for us today. Um, <laughs> we've been through here a lot here. Thank you to our listeners <laughs> for, for Those standing of you by that us. Are still there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Natalie. If you like this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producer Stephen Trainer and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer Amber McKinney. Additional reporting by John Hill and Maria Coquelinaris. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. <laughs>